Hi, everyone. This is the Brandon Adams podcast, episode 12. I have with me Blake Stevenson, otherwise known as Empire Maker 2. Blake, it looks like you've got a very sterile environment behind you. Where are you right now? Um, I'm in San Diego. I just moved in, so I don't have a lot of stuff in here right now, which I don't know. I'm still in the process of moving in, and it kind of got cut short by all the virus talk this week. I don't think a lot of people want to be doing stuff right now. So just kind of waiting till things die down a little bit so I can move in. Well, on the plus side, uh, Daily Fantasy Sports, which was taking, I don't know, five to eight hours of your day every day is no longer a thing. Uh, yeah, I've just kind of been dedicating that to researching coronavirus because I haven't had much else to do. So just been reading everything I can. Uh, listening to podcasts and just trying to figure out a, a solution to what's going on right now. Cause I'm, I'm still learning new things every time I read something. So it's been, it's been a long week. <laughs> Hopefully we can get sports back soon. So we don't have to, you know, kind of be twiddling our thumbs for hours a day and watching Netflix. Um, so hopefully we get back to sports soon because that is my livelihood. <laughs> well, we can, we can always uh, do our part for the effort and, and like do some prop tennis bets or something, it, stream it online. We'll have, to, we'll have to come up with something. Get our yeah. minus 10 games going. I, I, this other guy has been quarantined, so I've been playing a little bit of tennis with him, but that's pretty much all I've been doing. So maybe my tennis game is getting a little better because of that. Nice, nice. So, okay, I imagine that most of our audience will be familiar with your background. Some people are not. You were part of the, the poker world from the very beginning, had a lot of success playing cash games, sort of played professional poker for longer, longer than most after the boom ended, after even online poker in the U.S. got sh shut down, you were still playing professionally a bit. And then you were one of the earliest to switch into daily fantasy sports. And if you pulled the uh, top daily fantasy sports players in the world, there's a, a pretty good chance that you might come out as the number one daily fantasy sports player. So you've sort of quietly dominated for a long period of time in, uh, in daily fantasy sports. Um, then in the, in the Twitter world, you're famous for, for other things, which is basically a, an extreme level of outspokenness. <laughs> well, I, I've never taken Twitter that seriously. So I think when people, you know, I'm talking seriously about a subject like this, they don't really get it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of known for trolling. And when I start talking about something that, like this, they don't know if they can take me seriously, but I am being 100% serious about the things I say about what's going on recently. So um, I think people can stop, like, stop doubting me on that. But I am known for, you know, taking some steam off on Twitter or just trolling people, trying to have a good time. I don't take life too seriously overall, but I think this is something to be very serious about in, in general. So I'm not I'm not joking or trolling when it comes to something like this. So when I think of you in, in daily fantasy sports, I think that what makes you good is a 
independent analytical thought where you're not um, inclined to go with what other people believe, not inclined to go with groupthink, not inclined to be a slave to projections or what have you. So that's one independent analytical thought. Um, and, and I feel like uh, you also sweat the details in a way that no other daily fantasy player does. So I've, I've noticed sometimes you might have a, a close decision, say, uh, uh, say two players versus another two players, and you'll think about this decision and sweat this decision, even though it might be very, very close for a long period of time, for hours. Um, so you're a, a slave to the details in that way, but those, those small decisions are what uh, can be very important in, in daily fantasy sports. So what, first of all, what aspect is it about your personality that leads you to sweat those really close decisions for a long period of time? Um, I think it's just, I've always strived for perfection. I think I, when I'm looking at decisions like that, I just hate being wrong. So I'm going to like the biggest, smallest details I can find, even in the NBA. Like if I think, I'm in a certain matchup. I'll look at every game log for the year to see what they might have done in that particular situation. Say the other team is going with two big guys. What have they done in that situation? What do certain coaches tend to do in blowouts? I don't, I don't think many people are looking at the details like that, but I'm like going that far into it because we've kind of gotten to the point where these projection systems are really good but they're leaving out those details. So I think that's where my edge is. I'm not just looking at the broad sense of projections. I'm going so far deep into it that I'm, I'm gaining edges that other people wouldn't realize are, are there, I guess. So I'm just looking at every matchup and going back into time and kind of seeing um, what they have done in certain situations too. And, and there is a strange element to DFS, uh, especially cash games, which you specialize in the one-on-one -on -one contest where uh, you get this strange situation where an A-plus lineup, like a perfect lineup, say your, your lineup that you're feeling very good about on a given night against an A lineup, on the face of it, they seem really close, but when you, when you dig in, the A-plus lineup might be like a minus 140 favorite over the A lineup. Um, I don't think I'm ever that big of a favorite. I think, you know, you're getting, say, an NBA, you might be a four- or five-point favorite over that. So I wouldn't say it's minus 140, but I think it's enough to beat the rake probably. I would say more like minus 115-ish. Um, but, yeah, it's still – Sometimes I'm, I'm still taking head-to-heads in, in those situations. And there's other nights where I just, I, I think, you know, everyone's going to have the A-plus lineup and I won't take other people's games because I, I just know we're, we're losing a rake. So that's something you have to decide too. Are you, you have to kind of look at your own lineup and say, um, am, I, am I beating the A lineup? And that's where a lot of my judgment comes into play. You know, am I beating, am I beating uh, the rake on a certain night? And probably about half the, half the days I'll take games from people because I, I think I am beating the rake. But I'm just not like scooping the board no matter what, you know? A lot of people yeah. think I'm gambling no matter what, which is not true. 
Yeah. Okay, so uh, take me into coronavirus. You're obviously on Twitter a lot. So I imagine that you have a very curated Twitter list of smart people across a variety of disciplines. At at what point did did you have a change in awareness? Um, I think it probably would have happened two weeks ago when uh, I was scheduled to go to certain events and I saw them starting to get canceled and I'm like, what's going on here? I know, you know, we have a, a few cases, but I didn't think it was that serious. And I'm like, why are, why are like, why is ultra music festival in Miami, which I was thinking about going to canceling, you know, two weeks ago and we have no action going on. So that's when I started thinking about it in a, in a U.S. sense. I've been following coronavirus since like late December when I, I saw videos of people in China just like falling over on the news and I'm like, what's going on here? But I never thought it would really affect the rest of the world. I thought it was just gonna be a China problem pretty much because I didn't understand the extent of uh, what it can do. So that's, that's kind of when I started looking at it um, in a world sense, but the U.S. and how we were going to be affected probably would have been only like two weeks ago. And I think probably a week ago, I started really getting into it um, because I had a bunch of smart people telling me like, this is, this is going to get bad and we don't know it. Like, what, what am I supposed to do about the stock market? Are you going to get in or out? And I'm not really involved in the stock market right now. So I was like, if all these smart people are telling me, you know, what do, what, what do you think we should be doing about it? I need to start looking at that. And I started looking at it like really in depth, like a week ago. So that's kind of the timeline of when I started really getting into it. And then with sports getting canceled, I, I had unlimited time. So I, I was probably looking at this for eight, 12 hours a day, like, the past four or five days. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, so you outed yourself as maybe a zero hedge reader if you were late December paying attention to this stuff because it wasn't in mainstream media for too long. It was on the news. I was seeing like, you know, some documented cases that were a guy like fell over on the subway in Wuhan. And I was like, this, I've never seen anything like this. And it just struck me as crazy, but I didn't think it would it would grow into a, a pandemic, which it, it has recently. Yeah, I was I was surprised that the markets were not paying attention earlier. Um, the markets didn't start reacting until a few weeks ago when Italy had a lot of cases. It was clear, um, but until then, it had been pretty much entirely shrugging it off, and I found that. I found that quite surprising because you had a clear exponential in play that was uh, having strong negative consequences if it played out. And I, I didn't see why the market was slow to react on that. I think it, I think it will remain a mystery. Um, Mainly because we treat these cases like, oh, we have this certain amount of cases and it doesn't seem like that bad. Like at first Italy was, you know, I had a hundred cases and they're like, well, this isn't a big deal. It's only a hundred. We can get this under control. But when you've looked at the data and seen that things are doubling in the early stages at like three and a half days, it becomes a, a big problem very soon if you don't get it under control. So 
So people are just thinking in numbers, like right now we have like 2,800 cases. That doesn't seem like that much. That's how many we have reported. But if it's doubling at the rate, I think it is, it's going to be a very big problem soon. And that's without adequate testing and, and you know, it, it could, the number could be so much higher. We just, I don't even really know a ballpark. I, I guess two and a half days ago, I thought it would be 300,000 in the cases in the US. And so at this point, if I was right on that, I would, I would guess it's around like half a million. Yeah, and uh, the key components of this virus are that people are asymptomatic for a while. Uh, and it's highly transmissible, so people are people are walking around not knowing that they're infecting other people. I think that's what yeah. makes it dangerous from a behavioral point of view. Yeah, and I've, I, uh, it, it's like my friend uh, Ryan Doubt went out yesterday, just kind of seeing how business is going, and he he just like he went to supermarkets, gyms, and he's like it's pretty much business as usual even though we're on this national lockdown, people are pretty much going about their daily lives in the, in the same way, it seems. Yeah. It, it is crazy, but by the same token, I, I think, uh, I think people should, they should be staying at, at home clearly, but there's, there, there are real trade-offs at play. Um, yeah. Like in a city, in a city like Vegas, for instance, Vegas has been business as usual, which clearly bad, clearly, clearly bad idea. But, but I think that um, they're making painful trade-offs because if you, if you close a casino for a day, you're losing millions and millions of dollars. And if you do that for a month, you know, you're losing hundred. Oh, hundred million dollars. So you, you're really weighing that into, you know, what you're doing. It's, it's hard to close a casino for a month. And if it gets really bad, it's really hard to close a casino for six months. You know, you might be out of business. So, yeah. Crazy trade-offs to all of this. And uh, the payroll, people on the payroll need, need the money. So uh, there's, there's that trade-off. And then you're also paying them not to work. And it's just a really crazy situation. If you close things down, you're, you're not making any money and then you're still paying your workers, which, I mean, I, I agree. You probably have to pay everyone because what are they going to do now? They can't go out. They can't provide for their family. So it becomes a, a trickle down effect where everyone's affected. So I know you're a flexible thinker. You've been considering all of the possible scenarios going forward. What, what do you consider as like the, the bad case scenarios? So for me, as not a medical expert, I think about the economy, which we had run in a fragile way for quite a long time. So the main thing that I worry about at the moment is that everyone sort of rushes to cash at the same time and our system's not, not built for that. So if people are starting to, to panic, I think it, it quickly uh, shreds the, the economic system. Um, and un unfortunately, it's not a very robust economic system at the moment. And I, I don't think it could, it could withstand a rush to cash in mass. 
Um, yeah, probably not. And I, I'm wondering about the best situation economically because if we're doing like, I don't know what you, how many what percent you think of people are are still working right now um, in general. What would you say? Like that are still what people have been told not to go out to work and are not working remotely. How many people? What percentage would you say? Not that high. I'm just guessing like, I was going to say like, 20. like, yeah, 15 to 20 was what I would say. Yeah. But if we, if we continue down this path, aren't we like, so 20% for how many months are we going to do that? It, I think it's like, we need to either figure out if we're going to go full lockdown and take the, the six week hit on like no one really working or continue down the path of, you know, 20 percent of people not working for multiple multiple months i don't know what that would be like eight to eight months to a year so that's the economic decision i think the government needs to think about um, whether what people are going to do with their money I, i'm not really sure i don't think people other than friday have shown trust in the markets too much and i don't really know where that boom came from other than Trump um, kind of got some stuff together and had people from the private sector kind of cleaning up his mess. But I don't really have faith in um, the entire virus in general, just going down in the, the system we're doing right now. So I don't know why the market responded like that. Well, I think it's simple. I think that the market's, will stay uh, chaotic in that fashion as long as there is no liquidity. And the price action we saw in the last three weeks was one thing. It was obviously very rare, very severe downward price action. But I would argue that the dry up in liquidity that we saw was even more rare. Um, the, the liquidity just simply wasn't there in any trading vehicle. So, for instance, uh, futures on like the S&P, typically if you wanted to trade, you could trade in quarter increments and you could do almost any size, like 200 contracts by 200 contracts. In Friday, it was like one, one contract by three contracts or three contracts by three contracts, like a complete dry up in liquidity. So it just doesn't take much to get these these moves like if one person must unload you can get massive moves and and people are are uncertain in a way which makes them hesitant to take the other side of a mass liquidation um so i think we're just going to have these big moves because of a an utter lack of liquidity and my kind of nightmare scenario is that um the biggest fiduciary <clears throat> companies in the world, your Fidelities, BlackRock, State Streets, they, they rely on certain assumptions of how the world works. And you can tax assumptions about uh, price decline, that doesn't really affect them. But if you have liquidity dry up completely, they're just not prepared for that environment because then that opens up the scenario where they could have very unlikely, impossible to anticipate levels of redemption 
And that forces them to come up with a lot of cash. At the same time, you have no liquidity. So you could think about it like in fidelity terms, fidelity holds trillions of dollars for retirees all over the world, right? They, they can reasonably anticipate what the level of liquidity in the markets is. They can also reasonably anticipate what the level of redemptions are. In fully efficient markets, it doesn't matter what the level of redemptions are. They're able to liquidate positions, give cash to clients, no big deal, right? But if they get, if you have a, a panic and a lot of people redeeming their, their fidelity investments at the same time, all they want, they don't want to be in the mutual fund anymore. They want cash in their bank. If, if that happens for a lot of people at the same time, there's like a massive cash call from fidelity to yeah. its clients yeah. and, and fidelity is forced to liquidate shares in an environment where you can't liquidate. That's kind of what I worry about in upcoming weeks is we, we haven't seen anything worrisome. Yeah, we're not at that point yet. I know a lot of people I talked to and they said they really haven't seen that type of action yet. But I, I, I don't think people, once they see like two or three weeks down the line what's going on, I think that is gonna be a massive problem actually. I didn't really think about that. Um, yeah, because we're not at the, we're not at like a pure panic stage right now with how the government's acting. But once certain stuff starts to happen and you know hospitalizations start to to go up, I think we could see that um, in two or three weeks for sure. Yeah, I don't think you've seen massive redemptions yet, and if it happened, it would. It's just an outlier risk related to human behavior um because i don't really think that it's necessarily something that people should do it's just something that they might do observing everything crazy going on around them i think i think actually if you're trying to come up with the outlook for the stock market it's quite a complicated problem now because on the one hand you've got a very weak reality on the other hand policymakers are going to throw everything possible at it and that argues for possibly higher stock prices over the longer term. Well, isn't, isn't, the, isn't the economy kind of correlated to the health of its citizens though? Aren't, like, so we, we kind of need to figure out what the best course of action for the health of, of our citizens is before we, we kind of know what's going to happen in the economy, I think. Um, what route we're going to take to curtail coronavirus. Because if, if our citizens aren't healthy, I don't see a good outlook for the stock market at all. And um, in our current plan, if, if we're doing like 80% of business for um, the next year, I don't see how that's going to be good for the economy at all. And And you're saying that just because you're operating at a lower level or because if you take that halfway solution, you're going to have a maximal sickness. Yeah. We're going to have a mass mass sickness and, and also we're going to be not operating at, you know, a hundred percent of our normal levels in our economy too. I think we're looking at both of those things. Right. And 
Yeah, there's clearly a, a lot of reason for short-term pessimism. What, what optimists about the stock market would tell you is that you have a mass liquidity flood coming in by policymakers and the productive capacity of the economy is not really changing if you fast forward a couple years down the line. So oh, yeah. fast forward, fast forward two years down the line and you have the economy operating uh, well, and you also have a lot more liquid dollars around the economy. So that, that might be favorable for the stock market. It's not, it's not my personal belief, but that's sort of the belief of the optimists. Yeah. But in the plan right now, we really have no idea how long this is going to take. Like, if it if it takes a year and a half, we we don't we don't even know like um, kind of what happens with the seasonality and the climate or the immunity of coronavirus. We're we're all just kind of guessing at at that stuff. And if we're taking this long term approach, no one really knows how long it's going to take because we don't know the exact numbers. We don't know how we're going to treat all these cases. So what if it's what if it's a year and a half? that it takes, what's, what's gonna happen to the economy then? So I think the economy would be much better served if we just shut everything down for like six weeks, got this in, in, in order, and then we're kind of resuming, you know, our, our, our almost normal economy after that. We're taking a massive hit in the short term, but this long-term plan, I don't think anyone has any idea how long, you know, flattening the curve's gonna take. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you, but it, at this stage of where things are, I don't think we can debate the idea of the policy wisdom of shutting things down for six weeks because we have civil liberties like we have. Well, that's, uh, that's the plan that the government's going to need to make, whether they need to pay people for six weeks, whether they need to, you know, reduce student loans, whether they need to just, I don't know, pay for the health care of everyone. I mean, that's what they have to decide. It's, I, I don't know what they're going to do or, or they're thinking. It's kind of hard to tell what, what Donald Trump and his, his cronies are thinking. It's kind of hard to get into a mind of a person who's not that smart and is not that logical. You know, I have no idea what they're planning on. Well, in terms of policy response, I find the last week discouraging because uh, I think the fiscal response is most important. And clearly there was heel dragging on both sides there. Pelosi just doesn't want to give yeah. Trump a lot of power there. And, and, and the Republicans, if, if, the, if the Democrats are floating uh, the policies that that they like, there's still there's still an ideological battle going on and not priority to let's just get it done. So I'm I'm worried on the fiscal side. On the monetary side, I'm worried because we've we've already, well, we're going to be hitting the zero bound quite quite shortly. And the Basically, the policies that need to be done to stabilize things are quite aggressive and they require congressional approval in some cases, like getting the Fed to buy some high quality corporate bonds and things like this. Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, 
what is scary about the entire situation. I don't know. I don't, I, I think we need smarter people in charge right now. I have no idea what they're thinking or planning on right now. And I think that's the scariest part of all this. We're, we're trusting a bunch of people that aren't experts in really anything here to decide, you know, the best way to go about this. So on seasonality and climate, we're, we're, we're just guessing because we're, we're just reading what the experts are saying. But um, what do you think about seasonality and climate? There was some interesting evidence that came out today that noted that the real, the real severe outbreaks have tended to uh, correspond with a quite narrow range in temperature and humidity. So that's who I've, it, it does seem that way, but I, are we sure it's, is it climate based or seasonal based is like people are arguing about that. I have no clue if it hits a certain temperature, where's the temperature where it, it doesn't, you know, infect as many people. It seems to be, I don't know, around 80 degrees would be my guess. What would you say? Humidity somehow seems to be entering the picture as well, um, where, where especially low humidity and high humidity is not conducive. I'm, I'm not expert on that, but Miami will be a test case because Miami is starting to get real warm, starting to get real wet. Uh, you have a lot of cases here and people are just going all out. Like the beach is packed, everything's going. So I think Miami will be a very interesting uh, test case in terms of seasonality. That's Trump's like entire play. That's what he's been saying this whole time. Like we just got to kind of wait it out till the spring. But I don't think anyone really knows for sure is the, is the scary thing. We can kind of see though that, you know, cases aren't really manifesting in like Mexico or, or South America as much as, you know, the Northern hemisphere. So there's definitely something there, but at the same time is, are as many cases being brought to those areas. You know, I feel like we got started way earlier because way more people are going to mainland Europe and America from China rather to South America, you know? Yeah. And they're pretty aggressive in South America. I've heard like Peru, apparently if you go from the U S you're, you're quarantined for 14 days, self self quarantine. They're also, yeah, they're also doing it they're also way ahead of us in, in testing people that are coming in. So I don't think anyone has those answers. There, there definitely seems to be some slight advantage to, to climate though. There has to be from the numbers I've seen, but it's not something I would really be willing to gamble on, you know, like, is it going to go away once it hits the spring? I don't think we can just gamble our entire, like, you know, country and economy on that. And then yeah. And, and also, it, it will seem like peak cases, even if it does turn out to be seasonal, peak cases will be hitting around late April, early May. And so that will seem like the worst of it, even if you've, you've hit the good part of the logistic curve at that point. Yeah, I think we're going to see, from my numbers, like the peak cases, like early April, I would say. So what happens if all those peak cases happen and then they, for some reason, go away? Are they dormant then? It, uh, like, I don't think we have any of those answers. So that's the other confusing part about all this. No, like, do you develop permanent immunity or? Like, 
is it just going to come back? What month is it going to come back in? Like if it goes away for the, the summer months, is it going to come back in October? Is it going to come back in December? Like, I don't think we have answers to any of those questions. Yeah, I think that's right. I have no, like, I don't think anyone knows is the problem. Yeah. That's the, that's the scary about thing about all this. I think we're all just guessing at certain things. Um, Dr. Fauci was on the Sunday morning shows and he was saying that he wouldn't personally go to a restaurant. Uh, is your policy right now no, no restaurants or are you going to restaurants? No, I'm not going to restaurants. I don't think it's responsible to really... I'm, I'm just trying to keep like four feet distance with every, like anyone. Um, I think what people don't understand is how easy it is to spread because Barton on your podcast said if you're sitting next to someone at an NBA game for whatever, two and a half hours, what do you think your you know infection rate is? And he said 70%. No, I think he said higher. I'm not, I'm not sure you might remember better than me, but I think it was a higher number than that. So, I mean, if you're sitting to a, the table next to someone at a restaurant for whatever, an hour, what is your rate then? It might be like what 50%, but that's just, that seems screwed up to me to put other people in harm, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so there's also some weak evidence that like, I don't know, hospital workers that are getting the most intense exposure, for some reason, they're tending to get sicker. And we don't know why that's true. So like if, if someone was demographic matched, say 40-year-old, certain health history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and one person is getting intense exposure in the hospital, the other not, the other who just picks it up in the outdoor environment. For some reason, the out the health outcomes of the person who works in the hospital are worse, and they can't. Yeah. As I understand, that's a bit of a mystery at the moment. I don't know anything about that. But the craziest thing I saw is like, you know, most people twenty one to twenty nine are not showing symptoms of this, and really, we're not testing those people. No one has really tested those people because they they don't have the supply of tests. But South Korea was testing this age group. And they were testing um, at like 30% of the population having coronavirus between those ages. But we're not testing any of those people because we don't, we don't have an adequate supply of tests. So now all these people are going to bars and they're going out for spring break, not knowing they have it. And they're getting a ton of people infected because they're not showing any symptoms at all. Like um, yesterday it came out, Christian Wood had coronavirus and he said, you know, he felt fine. He had the best game of his life. He had like 30 points and 20 rebounds or something while probably having coronavirus. So that just shows you that, you know, you're feeling totally fine. You think you can do whatever. You think you can go to bars, uh, have a normal life, but you're going outside and just. My man, my man Bear, my son is going to be getting rambunctious real soon. So we're going to be going out and about and, uh, He's, he's still climbing on things and everything else. And just avoid the skate park so he doesn't get injured. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll fade the skate parks. We'll just keep it to the golf course. It's crazy to me that New York has, I don't know, 600 cases or something, and they still have the schools open. What happens when, you know, they don't, they don't have enough ICU beds. They don't have, like, any ICU beds open. 
So what are they going to do when all these kids are getting it from school and then going out, giving it to their parents or giving it to their grandparents? Like, it's crazy to have schools open right now, I think, in, in it, especially in New York, which, you know, is a hotbed. Yeah, the, the trade-off they're making is that the the kids who go to school, their parents are like nurses and, and working in the hospitals and stuff, and you lose some of the staff. If, yeah. Uh, and it's just sort of normal society to keep everything going. Unfortunately, school serves as as child health healthcare as well, uh, child child care as well to some extent. So society doesn't function as well if everyone is. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't, I just don't like the approach that we're taking in general. Like, I don't think you can do this, this halfway in approach. I think we have to, with by Monday, I think we have to have a plan of what the future is going to be like. Cause if we're having these plans that, aren't um, definitive about how we're going to stop this. It's, it's, it's never going to stop. Gonna yeah. But in terms of plans, like we have a certain political system in, in our country, which is geared to maximizing political liberty. Right. And the yeah, way that. You got to save people that can't save themselves. I think and the, the, the normal, the general population just has no clue what's going on right now and how infectious coronavirus is. So at what point do we have to step in and say, you're not, you're not saving anyone. We have to help you because you, you're not making the right decisions. I mean, that's what other countries are doing right now. You can't go to bars anymore. You're, you can't like, cause states right now have 250 people maximum gatherings, but bars are still open saying, okay, 250 people can come in and then they're, they're packed. So what do we do about that? Yeah, I, I agree. But what you're, what you're saying is that each person that's going out to the bars, they're making a individually, probably irrational decision, probably, right? But, but from a collective standpoint, they're making a catastrophically bad decision because they're imposing big negative externalities on everyone else. Because for instance, they're 20, they go out to a bar, they're probably going to be fine, but they might infect their grandparents who then have a 10% chance of an ICU visit if they get, if they get sick. So, um, it's the, it's the negative societal externalities, but as a political system, we've basically been built around maximum uh, individual liberty. Unless you do something catastrophically bad in terms of negative externalities, like drive really drunk, um, then you're free to do your own thing. Obviously, we all pay a negative externality when someone eats way too much or, or and is a burden on the healthcare system. There's negative externalities all over the place. This just happens to be one that's extreme where people are imposing a large societal cost on others, but we don't have a history of just, of, of just locking down. Yeah. Um, we don't, but it's kind of like, what is the difference between like that and just like, 
blindly like shooting into a crowd of people. That's pretty much what you're doing. You're just, you have no idea if you have it or not. You're going out to a bar and you have no idea who you're giving it to. Like at some point, it, it, I think US will have the right to say, this is too dangerous of a behavior. We don't like, we just can't do this anymore because I don't know. It's at some point it's, it's gonna, I guess, maybe people might wake up in two or three weeks when the hospitalizations start um, rising, but I don't think they're, they really know the, the danger that is going on and what they're doing to other people potentially. Well, on my, on my numbers, the hospitalizations will be very high in like a week. Like, I don't think you need to wait two or three weeks for that. Oh, I think, I think that's when our system is going to be overridden in two or three weeks. Yeah. I think you'll be at alarming levels in one week. I think the big problem with that age group is like they can't, you know, tangibly see a, an enemy. So they're like, you know, I, it's not a terrorist. I can't see what's going on. And they also really can't think in the future how they're affecting the future. They're just everyone right now is thinking in the present. Like in my eyes, you know, we only have 2,800 cases. It doesn't seem that bad. They can't compute what's gonna what it's gonna look like two or three weeks down the line. Is the big problem I think. You're speaking uh, particularly of like the the twenty to thirty demographic. But I also think this the, the uh, over sixty demographic is just as bad. They they don't believe it either, and they're the they're the. So what, what do we do about them if they're not listening either? And they're, they're the people in the biggest danger here and they're not listening. Like why, why should anyone care then? Yeah. So it becomes a dilemma there. The two age groups where we can't see it and the ones that are gonna be affected the most by are the two age groups that don't seem to be listening at all. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, but just chatting with people, like we might see it differently because we're introverted people that uh, spend a lot of time in our condos anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like anything like that isn't close to a normal day for me. I could do this forever. <laughs> so... So there are like there are people that just go nuts. Like if they're alone, they just yeah, yeah, they're nuts. Sure. The only thing that's really changing in my life that I do is like I'm not going out on the weekends. You know, I usually go to the bar or a club or something. But I mean that that's not that hard to cut out. If a normal person's just off their job and they're losing that eight hours, I don't. I would be going crazy too because they're used to filling that space with their work, and then you're pretty much asking them to do nothing. It's just such a big mental shift for them that I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's viable either, you know? Now, one light question, one lighthearted question. You've been known to have some large uh, restaurant and bar bills. I'm wondering if you think like six months hence that those will be uh, regretted experiences or those will be like, thank God I did that when, when I could. What do you think is the more likely outcome? 
For what? Like not going out during this period? No, 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 no. Like, like you've been known as one that has had outsized bar bills and restaurant bills in your life. So I'm, I'm wondering when you look back six months from now, when you project yourself into your six month from now self, do you think it's more likely that you regret having spent that money or that you say, thank God I did that when the opportunity was around? I've never regretted the money I spent anywhere. I just, I usually do it when I'm, I'm winning and it's kind of like a reward for working hard. So I don't regret anything I've done going out. Like, um, and I've had a ton of fun times. I think I'll, I think if anything, I'll say, thank God I got to do all that stuff because who knows when I'm going to be able to do that again. Like, yeah. I see those places closed. I know all the nightclubs closed here like a few days ago. I, I kind of see the restaurants going that way pretty soon, but I don't know. I think you have fun whenever you have the chance to, because who knows when a situation like this might happen. So Twitter, I just want to talk about your, your Twitter game, which is the, is, it's, it's the best for a certain subset of people. I'm sure there are people that are deeply offended by it. And I'm trying to see if you can explain why, why it's so good. I think, I think part of it is that, and this is part of the reason I value the smartest poker players and daily fantasy guys on Twitter, because they, they aren't beholden to a lot of vested interest. Much of what you get on Twitter is smart people that nonetheless have many different things that they can't say many different people that they can offend, many, many audiences that they're soft-stepping when they write their tweets. And so it, it creates a, a, a filtered environment that people pretend isn't filtered. And you just sort of come out and it's whatever the fuck. Yeah, I, I think that's why I'm a, like, I don't, I don't have to report to anyone. I've been my own boss since I was 18, so I can, I've had the luxury to kind of say whatever I want, which is awesome. Like I don't have to sidestep anything. I can, I can call out anyone. I can say whatever. And at the end of the day, I, I think like Twitter for me is like, we don't get to go into the office. We're all working at home. So we're just kind of like, you know, we're just bullshitting with our friends. I, I look at Twitter as, as like, we're, we're all in an office and we're just bullshitting with each other. And you get a lot of characters like you would get in a normal job. So that's how I've, I've always treated Twitter. I think it's an awesome place. And I don't know, some people, I tend to pick on some people, which I've tried to, to stop a little bit, but <laughs> that's, what, that's when the best moments come out when you're just kind of, you know, going back and forth with certain people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find, it's so interesting how uh, people soft step a lot of things and, and you'll find in politics, it can be especially funny because what happens is anyone who's in a political sphere, they worry about repercussions. Yeah. I've and, oh, that's the best part. And then when that, as soon as that person goes down for one reason or another, people just trample all over them because they don't have to worry about the repercussions anymore. Like, like what people are gonna say about Trump when Trump is out of office 
is going to be unbelievable because people hold off on what they say now because they they worry about repercussions. But then it, it seeing, like what his kind of inner circle, all the people he got rid of, like the John Boltons and stuff. Like why aren't they kind of talking shit about him? It's going to be interesting to see what those people say once he get out, gets out of office because he's he's I don't know what he's what he holds over them or why they aren't like going after him. So that's going to be the most interesting part for sure. What they're going to say when he gets out of office. I don't know why they're sidestepping him so much. Yeah. Well, they figure they, they can, they can wait it out. <laughs> but the, the political markets are pretty interesting because Trump was about minus one seventy, maybe two weeks ago. Or a week and a half ago, and I think Biden's about minus one ten big three now. So there's there's just been a dramatic shift in the past week and a half. That's a really big shift. I don't think that's surprising. There was some damaging um, political big, reporting. That's just a big shift for a person to be, you know, sixty percent to whatever forty five percent in like a week and a half. It's a pretty big move. I get it's not a big move because what's been going on, but you know he's got to figure this out sooner. I don't think he's gonna, you know, get reelected. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's two there's two big things going on. One is that it's perceived that he's doing a a, a bad job during this time, so that's that's a big thing. And then, and then two is that it looks likely that we'll be in a a deepish recession. And the, the political forecasting is clear that if, if there is a recession, the, the probability of the incumbent goes down a lot. It's probably the single most important variable. So um, it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if it's likely to turn around or whatever. Like if we're in a recession at that time, uh, it's bad. Yeah, it's actually something I've been doing is collecting some data from like SARS and, and so forth and seeing uh, seeing what the decline in economic activity looked like then. And I'm, I'm trying to look at the data as it comes in now. And there's been some interesting stuff. Like there was some stuff on op about OpenTable on Twitter yesterday. And they have day by day, city by city data on reservations. And it took a while for it to go red, but then it just absolutely crumbled at the end of last week. Data would be too hard to collect if you just kind of went around, made some calls, see what's actually going on. It's probably a smart idea. I think the problem is with SARS. I mean, they kind of contained SARS pretty quickly. I think it was below 10,000 cases. If we get to a certain amount of cases here, it's just going to be such a bigger problem um, because we're going to have to, at some point, if it gets too bad, we're going to have to shut down everything. So that's something to, to look at for sure, I, I think. Yeah, uh, the problem on, uh, on economic data is it comes out infrequently for the most part. So it, it seems like it would be easy to, to gather what the, what the likely re response is, but, but it's not. It, it, my base case is that intuitive common sense approach, the economy is 70% consumption, consumption's falling off a cliff, there's gonna be a deep recession. I think that's pr yeah. pretty much where we are. 
and probably probably like a massive financial crisis like minus five percent global GDP type hit. Um, but who knows? I would I would take the way over if, if this goes bad on that. Five percent seems way too low for global GDP. But keep in mind that the baseline rates are positive. Right, but I, I don't know. I get that. I think you're thinking this is a way shorter term problem than I do with, with how you're thinking. Um, I get that you're kind of saying no matter what we do, you think we're going to have the same consumption levels by like January 1st of next year is what you're saying. But I don't know if that's the case. That I don't think that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I think that, I think that I'm thinking that the productive capacity of the economy is likely to remain relatively unchanged and it's just a matter of yeah, that's what I when you can get that firing i don't think at a certain point we're gonna have to lock down the u.s if, if we don't do something very fast because it's impossible to, to spread to stop the coronavirus at a certain point what are you going to do just be at the certain plan we are right now i, I don't know if people are w willing to to do what we're doing right now for the next year, you know? It doesn't seem viable for a lot of people. So, <laughs> I don't know, my, my, my outlook on the economy is really bad if we don't have a, a great plan put into place, which is, in my opinion, we just have to lock everything down for a little bit. Otherwise, we're gonna be dealing with the situation we are right now, and I, I, I think it's gonna take forever to get better. Not forever, but over a year, maybe. Yeah, that doesn't uh, that doesn't give people faith in 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 the economy at all either. If we're yeah. doing what we're doing now, I that's my main concern. If we're doing this flattening the curve approach, I think I don't know. It just seems like too long term of a plan for everyone to just say, "Oh, I'm not going to go out." They're they're gonna not want to do that either mentally i don't know it just doesn't seem like a optimism is going to be high with the current plan i agree with you um look i think there's fully a five percent maybe ten percent chance that everything breaks and we go mad max I yeah. think that's my biggest fear is like, <laughs> what do we do then? Do we lose, you know, do we lose control of the entire country? Like that is, that is the worst case scenario. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there is a, I think there is a I, chance I, there. I have to say it's about around the five, 10% chance too. That's what I was thinking. And it's, it's, Okay, we have 330 million people. Politics is hard. Keeping 330 million people getting along, difficult. Uh, we've done a remarkably good job for a long period of time. It's, uh, it's a complex problem and it's just become a lot more complex. Like, the thing, the thing um, just- Lockdown, are we gonna you know, declare like martial law? Are we gonna have tanks outside, like watching people going in and out? Are we police survey like surveillance drone surveillance like are people going to break the rules then we don't know how the like what human behavior is going to look like at that point you know 
Yeah, that's that's the part that's that's quite unpredictable. Um, watching our friends react on on Twitter in terms of economic projections, the thing that I think most people miss is the complexity of the policy response because the the politicians know how fragile everything is, how fragile the environment is. And what we have built in the US, unfortunately, is not a free market economy. We wish that it was closer to a free market economy, but it's, it's actually a political system that is built towards entrenched interest, especially older people who own assets and um, the lengths that will go to protect that system are, are quite extreme. If, if the market, let's just say, takes another 30% legs down, leg down, which look, if, the, if we had a free market economy, it should be robust. You should be able to have a 30% leg down, people lick their wounds, go on. Uh, some people lose tremendously, some people win, you pick up the pieces and move on. But that's, that's not what we have. We have an environment where if things go down a lot, pension systems break, insurance companies break, retirement funds break, everything breaks. It's, it's very fragile. So what happens is when you get those steep declines, policymakers change all the rules and throw everything at it. And it's very hard to predict what happens when that occurs. And there's nothing fair about the process. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's what the political response is going to look like, but it is what it's going to look like. And the outcome is unpredictable. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's, there's so many vested interests and at the end of the day, they're going to, they're going to rule in favor of what's going to, you know, keep those alive. So I totally agree with you there. Um, but yeah, there has to be, there has to be some action about, uh, what we're going to do pretty soon, or I, I don't know if any of those are going to survive. Um, but they're definitely going to be looking at, at, at that when they're making, when they're, um, making their policy decisions. I, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. And, and it doesn't help that Trump has a fixation on the stock market. No. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the biggest thing people don't realize is we're not living in a, a totally free market economy. Like he's going to do whatever he can to prop it up, I guess, for a while. And I don't know what your feelings were when they, um, what did they do last week? 1.5 trillion um, injected. What did you think about that move? Well, I've agreed with the, Powell interpretation from the in, from the beginning in, in that the purely repo operations are a, a somewhat technical operation that is not akin to strong money printing. Um, the repo, uh, the timing is suspect because there were some large repo operations in September that corresponded with some extreme stress in, in, in hedge funds. And it looked like maybe that was the immediate trigger this time around as well. Um, 
so the timing is suspicious, but the uh, I don't consider the strong repo operations akin to dramatic money printing operations. Um, the when they start ongoing purchases of commercial paper, which will start this week, and and they probably step up uh, T bill and out the curve treasury per, uh, purchases. That that is more monetization and more kind of inflationary over the long term. Um, so the short of it is that I don't see the repo operations as as being something to focus on. I see the more aggressive monetary operations being something to focus on okay. and, and, and the big, the repo, more repo operations will come just because the, the core of the problem is that um, you have the federal government running trillion dollar deficits in good times. And so now, and, and you sum up all of the deficits over time, you have the treasury debt outstanding and even in good times, you're having to issue a trillion plus the, plus the whatever the amount of rollover is each year. Um, and it, it has tended to gum up the banking sector. And so now, because this year is going to be a year where we're going to have aggressive fiscal policies, the, the treasury is going to need to run deficits of much larger than a trillion. And so issue more bonds that have to be absorbed by, by the market. And it's just inevitable that the Fed is going to have to take, take a lot of those on. Not, they, they don't buy directly at auction. Someone else buys at auction and then they, they take them onto their balance sheet later. It's just inevitable that that is going to happen. But, but the, th the reason with repo, the reason repo, I've tended to slightly lean in the Powell interpretation that it's a technical operation that shouldn't be thought of akin to more aggressive quantitative easing. The reason I believe that is because um, if you think about it like back in the old poker days, the, the difference might be if a, lot of, if a lot of bad loans in the economy, uh, in the poker economy came about, right? And you said, and, and someone came to you and said, well, I've been living uh, over my skis for a while. I have these treasury bills. Uh, can you lend me uh, $100,000 with these treasury bills as collateral, right? If we were your friend, you would gladly do that and you'd be taking no risk. And at some point, the situation would reverse itself. If it doesn't reverse itself, it's no big deal for or your balance sheet or his, it's, it, it's, it's really just solving a short-term liquidity problem, but it's not changing balance sheets. It's not, it's not expanding the overall, right? Yeah, got you. Whereas, whereas let's say there was a poker game and the, there were a lot of bad debts all around, right? Right. And one guy came in and he was, he was just like, like, fuck it. You know, this guy owes you money. Um, here's cash and I'll take the IOU from that guy. Right. Taking yeah. essentially, taking essentially the bad loan off your book and giving you cash. Right. That would be a, an aggressive stimulus to the economy that would spur a lot of action in the home game. Yeah. That, this, 
this is way above my pay, pay grade. So I'm asking you these questions. I'm, I'm yeah, but you, you get you get the difference. So 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 like during the during the um, during the financial crisis, they were doing insane things like injecting injecting equity straight into straight into bank balance sheets and. They were doing very, very aggressive actions, and I have no doubt they'll do whatever aggressive actions need to be done in this case. But, but the thing to keep in mind is, um, if they're trading cash for treasuries, which are which should be akin to cash, and then and then they plan to reverse that transaction at some point, the only way it's akin to um, quantitative easing is if it's a wink wink transaction where there's never any desire to reverse it. And even then it's still trading cash for near cash. So it's, it's not really akin to strong quantitative easing. Whereas if, if, if they start, for instance, they don't have the congressional authority to do this now, but they might get the con congressional authority. If they started taking uh, possibly impaired corporate bonds onto their balance sheet, trading those for cash, that would be a strong form of, of quantitative easing in, in my mind and, 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 and would be super inflationary. Um, but yeah, the, the operations last week are not something to be concerned about unless they, uh, it becomes obvious that there's never any intendancy any tendency to reverse them. They are after all reverse purchase arrangements. So they, they, they will tend to, to um, maybe increase the money supply in the short term, but at some later point reverse and, and decrease. Um, but there, there is a tendency in times of crisis for there to be these wink, wink, nod, nod transactions where on the one hand, you say it's a temporary program and then it becomes like a permanent program. So for instance, during a crisis time when Trump does something like suspend interest payments on student loans, you, you have to think that that, that might be uh, on the path to just debt forgiveness for student loans. It just, in a crisis times, it often goes that way. Um, but these stories will play out fast and furious as we know in the, in the next few weeks. I, I don't really know what I'm talking about in uh, econ, so I'm just listening to what you have to say because that's not my area of expertise, but that made a ton of sense to me. It's kind of what I was asking. Yeah, the um, honestly, the way we do government finance and monetary operations now is it's so unbelievably complex that most market participants have no idea. And the worry in times of crisis is that people um, people don't understand how we've been doing aggressive monetary operations for a long time, and it's been as we've said in the in the to the benefit of vested interest and it's been quite unfair so at times of crisis there's a tendency to hand out all of these um windfall gains to or bailouts to 
vested interest. And it's at that time that people start to examine everything and they're like, wait a second, this isn't fair. People start to look more closely and you get the sort of uh, extreme, extreme protest. I see that as reasonably likely in this environment. What do you, ha what do you think um, would happen to, say we have a major crisis, what do you think would happen in major banks like Chase, you know, Wells Fargo, if, if something like 2008 happened again, would we just bail them out if we were in a, a terrible position or, or are, are we allowed to do that again? Say the banks were in so much trouble, um, like Lehman Brothers was, like what would we do in that situation? Well, I think people are always fighting the, the past battles when it comes to financial crisis, and they're always looking for parallels. And financial markets are adaptive and have smart people, so we never fight the last war. Um, and, and so the bailouts, I could see, for instance, possibly some bailouts coming to the BlackRock, State Streets, Fidelity, the big holders of retirement savings that are tightly involved with the stock market. That would be politically unpopular. Popular with boomers that held stocks, but unpopular with everyone else. And I, I could imagine those type of bailouts coming, they would be very, very unpopular. Um, so we'll just have to see. And as far as the banks go, put it this way, the banks, um, in this case, they were handcuffed in the response to the financial crisis. So they, they have remained responsible. However, um, there are things that they just can't anticipate. They can't reasonably anticipate. And for every bank, no bank can, can deal with loan impairment no matter how well capitalized they are. I know. So, There's like a big run on the banks. What are they, they going to do? The run on the banks they can handle because if there's this extreme liquidity demand, either because everyone's drawing credit lines at once or because everyone demands uh, cash at the teller at once, that they can handle with no problem because that's a, that's a technical liquidity issue that the Fed will help them solve undoubtedly. The issue that the banks cannot respond to is, is if the loans that they've made, either for credit cards, although credit cards are a small part of the overall, or more likely their big portfolios of corporate loans and and real estate loans, if those become impaired, where people are not paying those back, no bank can survive that. No bank can survive significant loan impairment. So we're really, really far away from that scenario. But what you would be watching out for is corporations clearly just not paying back loans in mass. And also um, there are, there are well collateralized loans on real estate all across the country, right? And there is a short-term danger that the real estate in New York, Miami, Boston, LA, San Francisco, that's very richly priced, just goes no bid for a little while. And 
that would be the type of unanticipated price change that no bank is prepared for? Which seems possible, I think. It seems possible. Um, there, I, I could imagine that, that we could get over that. I mean, first of all, they don't truly go no bid unless things get bad enough where you don't see a way out. If you can see a way out in 18 months, then you'd buy now at, at, a, at a big discount. Um, and what happened in 2000, 2008, 2009 is that um, there was an encouragement by regulators to mark to market real estate declines quickly, which did create a vicious cycle element, which made things a little bit worse. Um, so you can imagine a scenario where New York goes no bid for a while. If um, no bid just results in no transactions, then there's a theoretical possibility of everyone just pretending that no transactions means that prices haven't changed and everyone keeps, keeps the price on their books at, at like whatever the last transaction price is and doesn't mark it down. And then when things recover, even if it's like 12, 18 months hence, everything's fine. But if you get pressure to like mark it down to the perceived new price that's very low and everyone has to mark the real estate at this very low price, then you can get distressed selling and, and liquidations, forced liquidations. learned a lot <laughs> <laughs> well if you ever have any questions on that stuff you know where to turn well anyway i think i think this was this was great i'm gonna do a like uh just basically edit the beginning and then just put out the raw footage so we'll see how it goes all right cool man that was fun Thanks. all right hit me up anytime all right, see i'm glad we're back on our uh, skype chat we'll see you later <laughs>